The text for our meditation this morning is from the 119th Psalm, the sixth stanza, verses 41 through 48. Please rise. Now let your mercies come to me, Lord, your salvation, according to your sayings. And I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not utterly tear away from my mouth the word of truth, for I have waited for your judgments. Now I shall keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I will walk in a wide place, for I study your regulations. And I will speak of your testimonies before kings, and not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. And I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will muse on your engraved commands. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of our Lord Jesus, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now when God called Moses to be the deliverer of his people, to bring his message to them and to Pharaoh, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or more recently, or even since you started speaking to your servant, for my mouth and tongue are slow and clumsy. So the Lord said to him, Who made a mouth for people? Or who makes someone mute or deaf, able to see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you will speak. When Jesus told his disciples about the persecution that they would face as they fulfilled their mission to share the gospel, he encouraged them, Whenever they hand you over... Do not be worried about how you will respond or what you will say, because what you will say will be given to you in that hour. In fact, you will not be the one speaking, but the Spirit of your Father will be speaking through you. And when Paul preached to the Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, I did not come with superior speech or wisdom in order to proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I had no intention of knowing anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not marked by persuasive words of human wisdom, but by a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And we see these truths put on display in this stanza from Psalm 119 today, that Our minds and our hearts and our tongues are incapable things that stutter and fail and are clumsy and they don't know what to say. But these things are transformed by God's gracious word. And therefore we have words because of God's word. Now when we come to the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, we encounter something unique. Vav is the name of this letter and it makes the W or the V sound. Now, my Hebrew-English lexicon counts exactly ten words in the Hebrew language that begin with vav. You remember how Psalm 119 is constructed? Every stanza has eight lines that begin with that letter of the alphabet. Well, now, this eight-line stanza should have every line begin with vav, but there are only ten words available. And two of those words are names of places that don't exist anymore and probably didn't exist by the time that David was writing. Five of those words are proper names of people. One is an uncommon word that means guilty, and no one at David's time would really have been using that word. And one is the word for hook. 
any of those words would stick out very awkwardly in the poetry, and they wouldn't make much sense. So what was the psalmist left to do to keep this structure working? But those are only nine of the words. The tenth word is actually the most common word in the Hebrew language, and it means, basically, and. It consists of really just that one letter, vav, standing by itself, and it's less a word than a particle that's attached to the front of other words that means and. The way we often say and in English functions similarly. No one, for instance, says peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We say peanut butter and jelly. No one says socks and shoes. We say socks and shoes. It's less of a word and more of a particle. It's just inserted in there. And so in this stanza, each line begins with what we would translate as and, or perhaps, and then. Because the Hebrew language, you see, is very well suited to storytelling. And a common feature of the way they told stories in Hebrew was that they would use that particle, vav, to make the story keep moving. And then, and then, and then. It really builds tension, too, in this story when the person telling it relates something that happened and follows it by, and then... You get more invested as that goes on. But it's unusual to do such a thing in poetry. It sounds awkward. It sounds imperfect. Almost like the person who was writing the poem didn't know how to write a poem. But David, who wrote this psalm, was a very good poet. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was even better. Now the reason I'm telling you all this is because the awkwardness and the imperfection of this stanza is exactly the point. Just look at the first verse. Now let your mercies come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your sayings. The person who prays this psalm is in need. We've seen some of that need in earlier stanzas already. But here there's a specific need because you see if God gives his salvation and his mercies The speaker says, And I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Now here's the situation. The psalmist is confronted by an unbeliever, someone who's making fun of him, someone mocking him, someone denying the truth of Scripture. It could be a co-worker, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, or it could be a neighbor. But in the moment, he's tongue-tied. What do I say? How do I answer? Maybe you know a little bit of what that feels like. And so this prayer is that God give the words to say. And more, and do not utterly tear away from my mouth the word of truth, for I have waited for your judgments. So maybe you know what that feels like too. You've been at church or at Bible study and you've discussed a topic that you've argued about with a neighbor over and over again, and you finally feel like all the questions and objections that that neighbor might have are answered. Now your ammo is fully loaded, and you can respond. Now you'll be able to shut him down. But then when you go and talk to him again, you've forgotten it all. But if God puts his word into your heart, you feel... As though you can say this, Now I shall keep your law continually, forever and ever. How long after you were confirmed did it take to forget, say, the meaning of the sacrament of the altar? Now maybe you still remember. That's great. Every part of your catechism. 
And I'm sure even if you don't remember the exact words of your whole catechism, you still believe they're true. But it is a fact that our memories are imperfect. It's easy for us to forget even the most important things. But that's the least of our worries. We know that God's word instructs us to do or not to do, and yet still we choose the wrong path. We still choose our sins. In talking with that neighbor, for instance, the one who mocks the faith and denies its truth, we know that Jesus wants us to speak the truth with that person. We know that we should correct him when he shoves the gospel in the mud. But the moment arises and we hesitate. Should I really make this neighbor into an enemy? Should I offend him? So we say nothing. And then we feel really, really bad about it later. And so we offer this prayer. Now let your mercies come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your sayings, and I will have an answer for him who reproaches me. For I trust in your word. And do not utterly tear away from my mouth the word of truth, for I have waited for your judgments. Now I shall keep your law continually, forever and ever. Essentially praying, God, give me the words so that next time I have an answer. And the same thing could apply to our own personal sin, when you know that what you've done is wrong. Because you know what God's word says, then that guilt should be gnawing at you. It's one of the effects of God's word. The law reminds you of your own failings. And not just your failings, but your acts of rebellion. And do not utterly tear away from my mouth the word of truth, for I have waited your, for your judgments. Now I shall keep your law continually, forever and ever. And this means I have sinned, and so, God, you have the right to forsake me utterly, to take your word, your son, Jesus, out of my mouth and out of my heart. But in my need I have waited, I have depended upon, and I have relied on your declarations of righteousness, covering me with Jesus. With your power, not with mine, I shall be able to keep your instructions ongoing in my life forever and ever. Now consider this fact. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. So what kind of fruit did you have then? They were things of which you are now ashamed. Yes, the final result of those things is death. When Lazarus lay dead in the tomb, he couldn't speak. And neither can you or I, not spiritually, because in our sins we are spiritually dead. But then Lazarus did speak. And he did so only when Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! There was no life or speech until the word of God came to the dead thing. The prophet Ezekiel shares a vision. When he saw a valley filled with dead, dry bones, God spoke to him. He said to me, Son of man, can these dry bones live? I answered, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And the bones did come alive. When the word of God came to the dead thing, it was made alive and able to speak. And that same thing is true of you and me. Dead in our trespasses and sins, we hear the word of God, and it gives us life. And as living things, we are able to speak and to do God's will. But the sinful flesh still clings to us in this life. We still fail. 
We still rebel. We still fall. And so we need forgiveness and renewal again and again in an ongoing cycle. And so His Word is repeated among us. And that's because we will never say the right thing. We will never have the right answer unless we hear it again and again. And then our dead selves, made alive, are able to bear fruit. But now, since you were set free from sin and have become slaves to God, you have your fruit resulting in sanctification, and the final result is eternal life. But if we were to try by our own efforts, we would inevitably fail. Just think what the result would have been if the disciples had tried to feed those 4,000 men with just their seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. All that they had was nowhere near enough to measure up to that task. But with Jesus' blessing, Jesus' word, the matter changed. The people ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And so when God has given us his word and filled us with his gospel and forgiven and empowered us, we pray, and I will walk in a wide place for I study your regulations. A wide place, that's an easy pathway. If you've ever tried driving up a narrow mountain path, you know how terrifying that can be, that close to the edge. But you can take it easy in a wide place. And a walk in the Bible frequently means one's way of life, one's habits and lifestyle. When God's word is given to you, your life is made easier. Didn't Jesus promise? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You might, of course, have a harder time with God's word in your heart, facing persecution, facing your own sins. But Jesus promises you an easy and light burden. And that's because Jesus took our burdens, those sins that weigh you down, those fears that keep you quiet, that death that grips you tight, they're all gone. There are no bars on your prison, but in Jesus you are free. You are in a wide place, and I will speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. Think of Esther. She knew of the plot against her people which sought to destroy all of them. And the only way she could stop it, she knew, was by speaking to her husband, the king. But here's the problem in her own words. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that it is the law that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned will be put to death unless the king holds out the golden scepter to him. Then he will live. But I have not been called to go to the king for 30 days. But because of her faith, because of the power of God's word in her soul, Esther dressed in the queen's royal clothing and stood in the inner court of the king's palace opposite the quarters of the king. The king was sitting on the throne in the reception hall opposite the entrance. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she pleased him. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. Esther approached and touched the head of the scepter. She was made bold to speak God's truth before kings, even though she could easily have died for it. 
And this was fulfilled even more greatly in Jesus himself. He spoke boldly before the high priest. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in a synagogue or at the temple where all the Jews gather. I said nothing in secret. Why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. And he spoke boldly before Pilate. I am, as you say, a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And he was not ashamed of these things, even though they led to his suffering, crucifixion, and death. With his word embraced tightly, he went to death for you. And therefore his followers have been made able to do the same. Peter and Paul stood up before rulers and leaders. All but one of the apostles were martyred for professing the truth. Even you are given boldness to speak, to confess God's word, and you may not always feel it. But here in the divine service, you're given room to practice. You've confessed the creed aloud. You've sung hymns. You've blessed me and one another. The words of the Gloria and Excelsis, for instance, every one of them scriptural, contain the truth of your faith. You're able to speak and to sing them, to take them to heart because of what Jesus did for you. He is your personal Savior. And now see what reaction this causes. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love, and I will lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will muse on your engraved commands. The law becomes our delight, a recurring theme in this psalm. The demands laid against us, which terrify us because of their magnitude and of how impossible it is to keep them, they become a joy for us and a treasure because of the faith that we are given, which holds on to Jesus' life. And notice in these last two verses that repeated phrase, your commandments which I love. Repetition is a key feature in this stanza, and indeed it's a key feature in this whole psalm. Just notice how it functions here. God's commandments are doubly emphasized to be the commandments which I love. They've absorbed me into them, made me in line with them, and given me a joyful direction in life, thanks to God. Now we cannot think of the commandments except in the context of the love that we've been given for them because Jesus kept them perfectly in your place and now gives you the power, the strength, and the opportunity to keep them, to show love to one another. And you may also remember that there are eight terms regularly used in this psalm to refer to God's word. All eight of them are used in this stanza at least once. Commandments is one of them, and it's repeated twice. Another one that's repeated is word, which you've heard twice. And I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not utterly tear away from my mouth the word of truth, for I have waited for your judgments. And in fact, this term is actually repeated three times, but it's hidden in the translation, because the word for answer is the same as the Hebrew for the word word. So it says, and I will have a word for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. One gets the impression that this stanza, which is all about the inability of the human tongue is thirsty for God's word. How often we repeat it. And that repetition also signals a theme in this whole psalm. It signals the theme of the cycle of repentance. 
which is the essence of the Christian life. Does it ever seem dull to you to say the same things each divine service, the same Kyrie, the same Gloria, the same Creed, the same Sanctus, the same Agnus Dei? Can't we say something new? Can't we say something that applies to our lives, something that relates to us on a personal level? But this cycle of words repeated again and again hits you exactly where you are. You are a sinner in need of salvation. And you are a saint in need of strengthening in holiness. You cycle back into sin and you repent and you receive that forgiveness every single day. And we'll see this same thing as we continue in this psalm. And just as that stuttering, awkward repetition of this stanza becomes, in a way, the point of this stanza, that long, heavy repetitiveness of this psalm is also the point that we will never plumb the depths entirely of God's Word, but we just need it again and again because what it gives, that mercy, that life, that joy, is essential. And it gives us the strength to live in this world with Christ carrying us through. Amen. Please rise. The peace of God which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to everlasting life. Amen. We continue by